Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Welcome. Glad you're here today. Uh, we're still in our series, The Questions of Jesus. We're examining six questions that Jesus asks us. And the intent is to help us know more God more fully. And it's also to help us understand ourselves better. And it's to help us uh, dialogue more directly in a conversation with God and uh, grow. So wherever you're at, just jump on in with your questions with God and just start talking to him about these questions. Uh, the questions, uh, frankly, have been really good for me. I've, I've been challenged by them. I hope and pray that you have been as well uh, to grow in this time. So today the topic is really challenging, i got to tell you. If you were to have Americans rank Jesus' teachings from their most favorite and his, and his stories from the most favorite to the most hated, I think what we're dealing with today would be the most hated. It's uncomfortable, it's demanding, it's even offensive. And yet as we walk through today, what I hope to land with all of you is, is to land in a place of understanding this question that Jesus is asking, understand Jesus' statements better in a way that can be liberating, hopeful, and make sense to you, or at least, at the very least, give you hope that there may be a way through this offense to something that's truly good, even if you are still uncomfortable with it. So the goal of this series is not to fully address all the questions. The goal of this series is to help each one of us turn to God and respond to these questions in a conversation with God. So the bottom line today is this. God has a habit of working at times in ways that we can easily find annoying, if not outright bewildering or offensive. Um, I work with a lot of churches. I've worked with a lot of pastors. And one of the things that often annoys me about God is how some of the most successful pastors I've known, uh, they're such terribly flawed people, and, and, and they don't even recognize their biggest flaws in their life. I mean, it would be one thing if they owned it, because then they would be inspiringly real and authentic, right? But they don't even, I'm talking about people who don't even own their flaws and don't even recognize them. And I'm not talking about the, the scammers out there who are, you know, manipulating things and all the guys. Like, I'm talking about pastors who lead great churches where people are coming to know Jesus, where people's lives are being changed in awesome ways, where the churches are making a huge difference in their community. And their pastors, when you get to know them really well, it makes one think, well, why, God, would you work through them and not this other person who seems like they're healthier than them, Right? That can be annoying and offensive, can't it? And for some of you, you've seen that in your business settings as well. You've seen people who have gotten promoted and succeeded, who manipulate and who don't treat people well, and you go, why, God? Why does that happen? And it's offensive to you. Why, God, did this person over here get miraculously healed of a head cold and this other person died of cancer even though we were praying for healing for him? Jesus asks us today a really tough question that we need to face in those moments that we're annoyed. And it's this, does this offend you? Now, before we jump into the scripture and draw out some lessons, let's pray first. Would you, would you join me? Lord, I pray that even in the middle of the offense that many of us will feel as we explore this now, Lord, I pray that you'd come to us and you'd teach us to face the offense with you, to learn to grow through it with you because, Lord, we love to avoid the areas that we're offended in. 
uh, and uh, you're inviting us to face it and face it with you and, and bring us to a place where we can understand life better through this moment. So in Jesus' name, we pray that and ask that your spirit would be with us right now. So let me set up the context of the scripture, and then we're going to jump in and read it. Jesus has just finished uh, a day of ministry. The, the text says in the wilderness, 5,000 men. Well, that, that means was, if you count women and children, it's probably more like 20,000 people in total were there that day. The day was full of spectacular miracles, of healing, healing, amazing teaching. And Jesus caps it off with this miraculous feast, multiplying a few fish and loaves to feed this absolutely astoundingly large crowd. It was a especially large for that day and especially large for the fact that they were meeting out in the desert wilderness. Jesus has a really zealously motivated following for them to come out and see him there. So that begs a question for us. How should Jesus respond to his popularity? Jesus counterintuitively does this time what he often does and, and what doesn't make sense to us. The people are adoring him. They're clamoring for more of him. And Jesus steals away at night by himself after putting his disciples in the boats and telling them to cross the Sea of Galilee. And then in the middle of the night, we got the other story where Jesus catches up with the disciples walking on the water and they make it to the other side of the lake. And everybody wakes up that next morning from the night of camping, from having listened to Jesus the day before, and they can't see Jesus anywhere. And somehow word gets back to them that somebody saw Jesus on the other side of the lake. So many in the crowd take off and they hurry to get around the other side of the lake. And we pick up that interaction in John 6, where the people who have just caught up to him from the crowd from the previous day, begin a long conversation with him about bread, flesh, and blood. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to skip a few verses. So if you're reading in your Bible, you may just look at the screen to just catch up with us. So when they found him at the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I mean, come on, wow, Jesus, these are just your adoring fans who walked miles to see you and you confront them. First thing, words out of your mouth, right? Jesus is saying, hey, you are doing this for the right, maybe the right thing in pursuing me, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're doing it because I multiplied the bread. And sure, that was tasty yesterday, but Jesus wants to make clear, I don't want you to follow me because of what I can do for you. I want you to follow me for a more personal and meaningful reason. Text goes on, it says, Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work God of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? So Jesus goes on and they said, our ancestors ate man in the wilderness. That is, it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here's what the people are doing. They're trying to get Jesus to prove to them who they think he is, the Messiah. Like another miracle on top of already the many he's done is going to do anything for him. Isn't it true we often say, I would believe if God did a miracle. But here, with these people, God has done tons of miracles. Miraculous healings, miraculous provision on a monster scale, and they still don't believe. What's up with that? It's an important question for all of us to wrestle with. It's just not the one we're going to deal with today. So we're going to move on. 
Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Of course we want that bread, right? Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still don't believe. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said this, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And see, we see them struggling with the same thing we often struggle with today, which is God showing up and doing miracles or speaking authoritatively through someone we know well. That's, that's kind of hard for us sometimes, right? Verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. No one has seen the Father except the one who was from God, speaking of himself. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. What Jesus is saying here sounds an awful lot like he says a few chapters later in John 14 when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's already pretty, pretty offensive, right? But Jesus doubles down. He continues. He says, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread, pointing to himself, that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words... Hey, this dude who healed a lot of people and fed us yesterday, he's now asking us to be cannibals. That's what they're thinking. Jesus triples down. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. On hearing this, uh, hearing it, many of the disciples said to him, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? So, looking past the obvious offense of the cannibalistic metaphor, what Jesus is saying is still terribly offensive. Not just to the people of that day, but to people of our day as well. Jesus is saying, I am the only way. No one finds life apart from me. Eternal life is only granted through you coming to me and eating my body and drinking my blood. Eating eternal life is only found through me. Exclusivism, right? Exclusivism is rejected as offensive by most people in America and even many people in the four walls of the church. I mean, one way, Jesus, not so sure about that. But the exclusive truth here goes beyond that to saying to our culture who prizes independence and self-reliance that every one of us is helpless without God. 
See, what Jesus is saying here causes offense for us, at least on one, if not two levels, and one or both of them is are areas we take offense in. The first is this. Jesus points out how desperately we need him. We don't tend to be people who like to be told what we need. In, in many ways, you, you who in so many ways prize into, I, I'm like you, you who prize independence and self-sufficiency. We, we tend to live this pull yourself up by your bone bootstraps, power through hard things kind of approach to life. And, but Jesus boldly points out that each one of us is in desperate need of him, that we are helpless without God. To be self-sufficient, self-reliant lends itself to believing that we are entirely responsible for our success and your failure and that everything depends upon us. And therefore, therefore, we see being needy or even the nicer way of saying I'm in need as fundamental flaws in life. So we push back on Jesus saying we desperately need him because we like our autonomy and our self-reliance. But we too often come to God asking questions like these people did to him. We say, what must we do, what must we do to do the works God requires? So we tend to approach life and faith with the question, what works must I do? How can I prove myself, earn God's favor, earn my place, freedom from sin? How can I become successful, prosperous? Now notice this question is, is plural. What works? Plural. What are the things, what are the steps I need to take to overcome whatever it is, to be successful, wealthy, well-liked, to, to, to beat the addiction that I'm struggling with, to have a good marriage, to, to have the kind of faith where God's power and blessing works in my life. But Jesus answers the question, their, their statement, with, with a singular. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, believe in me. That's it. That's the primary thing. Come to me. Know me intimately and as regularly as you know your food. Know me as the only one who can satisfy your hunger, your desires, your hopes in life. But it goes deeper than that. The blood in Jewish culture was viewed as the very essence of life. Jesus is saying that without me, you are dead. Only with me can you truly discover what life really is and be alive. See, on our own, we are unable to adequately meet our needs, even at the most basic levels. For us to, we cannot determine, even determine good consistently enough, much less achieve good consistently enough on our own. We cannot determine to be free of sin and become free of sin on our own. We are dead. We need his life. Even the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians of all time, reflects on his own and humanity's helplessness to meet even our basic needs of being good and living a good life in Romans 7, where he basically says, I I have all these noble desires that I want to do, yet I don't do them. And I have all these things that I don't want to do, and I still do them. So Paul This guy who performed at a high level, graduating from the leading Jewish university of the day, the rising star in leadership, concludes, I am helpless to save myself, to meet my needs, whatever my needs are, whether that's material or feelings of worth and success, needs to be good and loving or or holy before God. I am completely helpless, as helpless as being dead, Paul concludes. See, in our lives... 
when we try to prove our merit and prove we can meet our own needs on our own, it is, it is so easy for us to, to listen to stuff like this and go to a really, really negative place quickly. So why is that? Well, I, I think it's because much of the offense that you and I take on in life challenges who we are. It challenges how we think about our identity in life. Offense exposes, uh, when we're offended, it exposes a serious question in our lives of who am I, what am I really like on the inside, how do I fit in life? I remember working with a really talented young leader who had the makings of a great leader in the church and in the movement of churches he was a part of. He had one area of character and skill development that was kind of holding him back. It didn't affect him most of the time, but when it affected him, it affected him really big. I remember sitting down with him and spending most of our time together affirming him in very specific ways, talking to him about uh, giving him a picture of how I and others believed in him and what his future could look like. And the whole time I was talking, he was beaming, feeling like a million bucks. And I wanted him to because he needed to be feeling that way. And then I talked to him about this this one area, which his area was he struggled to listen well, he struggled to take feedback well, and he struggled to respond with good leadership to feedback. And I illustrated what that looked like, and I walked him through a bunch of scenarios that he and I both had walked through and knew and told him how, how we could do this better and what he needed to learn to do it better. And I closed again by affirming him really, really well. And yet I discovered the next day when he went home and faced his own need, he actually felt hopeless and defeated, incapable, inferior, and he was offended at me and anybody else who thought that about him. Why? Because he felt that if one part of him was not good, then he was bad altogether. His failure in that area said something profound about who he was, and that offense that he took was because he couldn't handle facing what he thought that said about who he was. See, sometimes... We can feel that way, and I think it's really easy for us to go to a negative place when Jesus says, we don't just need to be better. We need to go from being dead to alive, and he's the only one who can get us there. But I love the way Matt Crossman says it. He puts it, he says, Jesus doesn't say there's nothing of value in us. Quite the opposite. He says that there are treasures of God waiting to be unlocked, unleashed, turned on, turned up, and set loose. But they lie dormant and dead, waiting for the breath of God to breathe on them and put them in motion. Who we are fundamentally comes from this divine breath, this divine spirit that Jesus says has been sent from heaven in his very person. When offense comes in our lives, we struggle with, how do I fit? Who am I? And those are really, really serious questions that deserve a serious answer from each and every one of us. Who am I? And the serious answer to that question is there is nobleness in each of us, and there is also this mix of things, that I know things to do that are, that are right to do, and I leave them undone, that there are things I know not to do, and I still do them, and both of which damage others and damage me, and I am a helplessly perplexing mix of sin and good, corrupt and evil and noble, evil desire and and pure desire. See, the difficulty is we innately know that's true about each and every one of us. We know we can't live up to our own expectations, much less God's. 
And so as God pushes back on this tendency of us to be self-reliant, trying to help us recognize our need and how desperately we need Him, Jesus' invitation is not just for us to add three steps to do to get to the best life. Rather, He invites us to Himself to know God as intimately as we, as we know the, the food and the bread we eat each day, to know God is the only one who can fulfill our hunger, our desires, and lead us to an abundant life. But there's a second area we're often offended in in, the, in this as well, and that's kind of obvious. It's that Jesus asserts He is the only way, the only requirement for true eternal life. See, this exclusive claim is so offensive Because it says that everyone else is wrong. Exclusive statements in general offend us. I was listening to Michael Ramsden, one of my favorite leading Christian thinkers today. He shared how one time after a QA and a with a bunch of non-Christians, a Buddhist woman came up to him and said, you know, the only problem I have with what you said today is that it sounds like you're saying that Jesus is the only way and that everybody else is following false gods and their way is false. And Ramsden responded, well, yeah, that's actually exactly what I'm saying. And she said, I could never follow Jesus because to do so would mean I was telling other people wrong. So he replied to her and he said, well, didn't the Buddha say that Hinduism was wrong and the caste system was evil? And she responded, well, yeah, actually, I just read about that this morning. Well, then Ramzan said, if you are prepared to follow the Buddha when he says other people are wrong, why are you not prepared to follow Jesus when he also makes an exclusive claim and calls other people wrong? She said to him, I don't like where this conversation's going. See, our culture rants, doesn't it, about how evil, unkind, intolerant, offensive this exclusive claim of Jesus is. And in this offense, what we are all wrestling with is the very nature of truth itself. Truth by nature is an exclusive claim, defining, distinguishing between right and wrong. So think of it this way. If I were here today telling you that all paths lead to God, then I would be saying that those who believe some paths lead to God and those who believe only one path leads to God are wrong. If, however, I am more rational than that and say that not all paths lead to God because certainly Hitler's path didn't lead there, but only some paths lead to God, then I'm saying that the people who believe all paths go to God and only one path go to God are wrong. See, no matter where you land, you are being exclusive, right? So just because someone makes a truth claim that says you are wrong doesn't mean they are intolerant or unkind any more than you are in your view. Now, I I, I get it. I understand that you may feel like they are intolerant to you because you don't like the feeling of being told you might be wrong. I get that. But nonetheless, it is impossible to hold any position on truth without being exclusive and, by some people's definition, intolerant. Consequently, what is even more important, I think, than than, as far as determining the legitimacy of Jesus' exclusive claim here is not the fact of the claim itself because all claims are exclusive. What matters more is the character and the nature of the person making the claim. So put it another way. Does Jesus, what he did and what he stands for, demonstrate love and what is right and best and good? Jesus is described as someone who is full of truth and grace. 
We touched on this a couple weeks ago. Let me take it just a little bit further. When you say someone is graceful, you're saying that there is a beauty and inspiration to their physical movement. When you say someone is gracious, you are saying there is a beauty to their inner moral movement, their character, the way they honestly relate to others with grace and kindness, especially in difficult situations. Jesus is for many, even many who are not followers of Jesus, the most celebrated example of truth and grace in history. We saw one powerful example of that a couple weeks ago on the woman caught in adultery and Jesus' interaction with her in the crowd, right? So let's look at this, though, even on a bigger scale, even on a more profound scale. So God created us in His image. He established humanity as the pinnacle of His creation, giving us, Genesis says, dominion. In other words, the responsibility is ours to steward the earth well. Our sin has broken all of creation, especially us, leaving us with this reality that we all admitted to earlier, I think, in our minds. We can all see that we are a helplessly mixed bag of selfless sacrifice and selfishness all in one pot. Sin and good, pure motivations and destructive motivations. Now, how does God's grace and truth touch and become a compelling truth for us at the deepest level? God, who created all that exists, who loved humanity so much that He made us in His image, and He trusts us so much to care for His creation, how do we respond to God's love and trust? Well, we regularly take offense at God's truth claims. We say that what He says is true is actually false. We say that what He designed as the best expression of love is not loving, and sometimes we actually say it's intolerant and hatred. So this God who created the entire universe, we accuse Him of being incapable of clearly and accurately communicating to us through Scripture so we doubt His Word. On top of that, we do things we don't want to do, and we hurt God, we hurt others, and we hurt His creation, we hurt ourselves. And yet, that God whom we've rebelled against, blamed for evil and suffering that is actually our doing, that God whom we consider rigid, backwards, out of date, we think we are wiser than Him, that God who created all that exists, is so gracious and loving that he decides to come as Jesus to pay the price for our rebellion against him, dying on the cross and rising again from the dead so that justice can be served and at the same time he can offer to each and every one of us forgiveness and mercy, the restoration of right relationship with him and with others and he can save us and he he can give us life instead of death. There is no greater story of truth and grace than that. I mean, think about it. You and I would never love someone who treated us like we have treated God and His beloved creation with such grace and truth. We wouldn't even think of going that far. See, the very function of truth automatically excludes things that are contradictory to it. And within the claim of Jesus, by his actions, we see one whose character and grace are so inspiring beyond anything we would ever do or even imagine, letting us know that this is the kind of perfect love that could only come from a good God. And when we see that, it's not only reasonable, 
but it's right and good to accept this exclusive claim of his, that the God who created all that exists, came to earth in Jesus, is the only way to eternal, full, true life. Uh, Let's examine this a little further. I don't want to stop there because sometimes we try to solve these questions with just, you know, our reasoning. But but we also try to solve these questions a lot of time through pictures, right? So imagine a conversation around a picture that we've all heard. I think we probably all heard it. We've maybe even had this conversation, maybe even said this. The conversation begins in reaction to Jesus saying, I am the only way to eternal life and true life. And someone begins the conversation by saying, well, you know, if you ask me, there are all kinds of paths in life and they all lead to the top of the mountain and to God. So we got this mountain. You may be on the Christian path, but others are on other paths and they all go to the top. Now, have you ever climbed a mountain all the way to the top? I've done it a number of times. One of my favorite was last summer. We did Hallett's Peak in the Rocky Mountain National Park with my two boys last summer. It was awesome and I was beat, but it was awesome. So when you climb to the top of a mountain and are standing on the peak, tell me, can you see where all paths lead from the base? Can you see that they all go up to the top, from the top? No, the answer is no. You can't see from there that all paths lead there. So if you are one who says all paths lead to the top, where do you need to be standing in order to authoritatively make that assertion? You need to be somewhere way up here, right? Well, so if you believe and assert the truth that all paths lead to the top, to God, then who are you claiming to be? Who's the one who has the all-knowing bird's-eye view? God, right? So I'm just trying to establish who here thinks they're God because I I just want to have a lot of questions for you, right? You see, sometimes we use a picture to explain our belief. But the big question we need to ask ourselves when we use pictures is, who am I in this picture? Who are you claiming to be that you can assert with such authority your statement? Now, Understand, I get it. There's a whole other side to this. I get it. All of us react to Jesus' exclusive claim of being the only way with this heart-wrenching, what about all the good people in the world who never hear Jesus' name? What about the good friend or the family member who was such a good person and never came explicitly to faith in Jesus? I have to believe God is more loving than to send them to hell. Because we don't want anyone to go to hell. Well, maybe we want Hitler and Stalin and... Jim Jones and, you know, the ISIS terrorists who brutalized and burned women and children. Maybe, maybe we were okay with those going to hell, but, but we don't want, with those exceptions, we don't want anyone else to go to hell. Or we react to the exclusive statements of, of moral statements that Jesus makes and the Bible makes about marriage and sexuality and life and abortion, and we think, wow, that is so lacking in compassion to because the person I know who is, who is violating that command is such a nice person. Right? We all feel that. Every single one of us. Don't we? As a result, we judge what the Bible says and what Jesus says as falling short. We, again, put ourselves in the place of God. But can I ask you a question? How do you reconcile the character and love of God that we just described a moment ago? Loving so much that he came to die for we who rebelled against him, telling him we know better than him, how we know better how to resolve things. How do we resolve that kind of love of that God coming for us and your compassion and fears of God arising out of his exclusive claim? 
Does God's act of love in Jesus, which goes far beyond anything we would ever even imagine or consider, not suggest that God must have a way to make things fair and just? Even if we can't understand it and grasp it? If God loves that much, can't we be confident in His far and above, beyond love, even in the face of true, exclusive claims? So the fact that we're all imperfect and broken by nature, needing to be shown where we are wrong by God, saved to what is right, that automatically sets every single one of us in this room up for offense from God. Whether it is this exclusive claim of Jesus is the only way or whether it is an offense over God's moral commands, this question Jesus asks us, does this offend you, is inviting us to not do what we most naturally do when we are offended. See, when we are offended, what we most naturally do is we dig in, we put up walls, we blow up, we argue, we put the people down who offend us, we, or we run and we leave the people or the institutions that offended us. But Jesus, in his question, does this offend you, is inviting us to respond differently, to instead engage in a conversation about the offense, to ponder if God, who is so outrageously and patiently loving as he is in Jesus, then how do I let this offense help me lead myself to converse with him so that I can, even in this, discover how Jesus is really really good. See, I think when we read this text today, you and I, we read it and we see this cannibalism metaphor Jesus is using and we, we recognize it for what it is. It's a metaphor. But, but the people with him that day didn't recognize it as a metaphor and they were offended. And I think honestly we can sit here and say, wow, those people were really dumb. Why did they not see that metaphor? It's so obvious, right? Yet our reality, when we are individually caught in offenses, you and I all too often don't see through it either to the obvious. Why? Because we, like them, are intent on being a certain way, things being a certain way, and wanting a certain thing, like Jesus' listeners were that day. Jesus is right. The people weren't really genuinely following him. They just wanted Jesus to do what they did the day before. They wanted him to thrill them with the physical healings, to make all their problems go away. That's what we want from God. They wanted him to dazzle them with all the multiplying of fish and loaves. They wanted him to provide whatever they wanted in abundance. They were consumers, not followers. Even if we are followers of Jesus we will consistently run into areas where Jesus is challenging us to move from an area where we are still a consumer to a follower. We all will get caught in expectations we have of what a good life looks like, of expectations of how God will do things and he'll do them in a certain way. We will get caught up in defining for God who is love, what we think love should look like, and how God fails to live up to our measure of love. And so when God's exclusive claims about himself and salvation or morality or character or right and wrong or what is healthiest hit those areas of our lives where we just want what we want and we want him to give us more of what we want and we want him to be what we think he should be, we will be offended. Because we can't clearly see what God is saying or doing or wanting, just like those listeners that day couldn't see through the metaphor. 
So today's question that Jesus asks us challenges us, I think, to ask an even bigger question, related question. What will you do when you are offended? Will you enter a dialogue with God? Will you allow Him to speak to you in that area and be open to letting Him change your heart if He wants to? Or will you live in offense? Where have you avoided God? Where have you avoided or dismissed His Word, the Bible? Where have you avoided or dismissed moral issues that the Bible talks about because of offense? Jesus is inviting you to a conversation today to discover His grace and His truth. He's inviting you to let Him exchange death for life and and darkness into light and and peace and wisdom instead of confusion. For some, your sticking point may not be that whole issue of that exclusive claim and the offense. It may be that you're actually more offended because you don't like being told you can't be self-reliant, that you are a needy person in need of Him, in need of salvation. If that bothers you, if that offends you, consider these questions. Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does your well-being and the well-being of the world rest? Who can make your life better, make it work, make it safe, make it successful? I want to invite you in all those questions to a conversation with God. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I just ask that you would come and you you would take our lives. Lord, we lay our lives down, our self-reliance down before you. And we acknowledge our need of you today. Lord, would you help us respond to the times when we were offended by you or your commands or the circumstances of life. And would you help us learn to turn toward you so that you can lead us through them and into truth, the truth that sets us free, the truth that brings life in place of death. And Lord, would you just come now into this space? We're yours. Come and lead us to your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.